Hey everyone, you are listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast. We are two neurodivergent mental health professionals in a neurotypical world. I'm Patrick Cassell. And I'm Dr. Neff. And during these episodes, we do talk about sensitive subjects, mental health, and there are some conversations that can certainly feel a bit overwhelming. So we do just want to use that disclosure and disclaimer before jumping in. And thanks for listening. As autistic ADHD business owners, Patrick and I both understand the importance of promotion and doing it in a way that feels authentic and genuine. If you are a neurodivergent business owner and you would like to place your services or products in front of a neurodivergent audience, we are now opening up our podcast for sponsorships and we're providing a 10% discount code for neurodivergent business owners. So if you are an autistic or ADHD business owner, and you'd like to get in front of our audience, reach out to Divergent Conversations Podcast at gmail.com for more information. And now we are going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. Workplace communication can be messy. Considering the lens of neurodiversity can be helpful for understanding this. Maybe you found yourself frustratedly typing per my last email in an office communication, perplexed about how a colleague or client doesn't seem to understand your very clearly written email. Consider this, visual information processing isn't everyone's strength. Perhaps a quick call can make a world of difference. Or how about including a video or voice message with your email? And this technology exists. Simple steps like these can make your work environment more accessible and bring out the best in everyone. Tula Consulting is on a mission to help organizations build more neuro-inclusive products and work environments. Tula does this by bringing curious minds to solve curious problems. Find out more by visiting tulaneurodiversity.org. That's T-U-L-A, neurodiversity.org. Thanks for hanging around, and now we're jumping back in. All right, so last week we talked about RSD, um, from a very basic foundational level and we asked for questions and we got a ton and we want to address the ones that we can today. So Megan and I are going to sort through these and we have some that we definitely want to do deeper dives on. We appreciate everyone submitting them and it's definitely a really important topic and I think one that we could have a lot of conversation around. Absolutely. I really just side note, like I'm really liking these Q&A format podcast we should do more of them it gives us structure which is actually kind of nice for a change yeah i think when we introduce like topics and then we can always ask for questions for follow-ups so that we have mm -hmm. episode ideas and keep the audience engaged too yeah structured chaos okay yeah um, oh when we started this <laughs> should we start with some of the easier questions or dive into the hard ones Man, where's my brain at today? Everywhere. Let's go. I, I need a slow warm up. My brain's still warming up. Let's start with okay. some of the more um, concrete or easier to answer questions. Okay. So I'm looking at the questions that we have. Where would you like to start? I think maybe one is how to open social media again when scared of RSD hangover days. Um, oh, yeah. I think this is a good question because we spoke a lot about like entrepreneurial RSD, but this mm -hmm. is more specifically for anyone who is just experiencing RSD and having to show up on social media. Absolutely. Yeah. I think 
social media for probably anyone with RSD, if you're at all posting or commenting, is going to be a really anxiety-inducing experience to open. Um, I just watched like a one-hour kind of training on this from Liani Dawson. Um, Dawson. They are an autistic ADHD entrepreneur in Australia. And I, first of all, just if you're an entrepreneur, you should check out their work because it's it's fantastic. But they had a one-hour um, kind of training ex um, explicitly on kind of rejection, social media. And it was for more of that entrepreneur stuff, but there's a lot of stuff that could be applied. Um, so like some of the things, like one thing she said that I love um, was, I think there's a visual of like a bird in nature. And she was like, you know, if I'm walking through nature, like a bird doesn't just yell at me, like you asshole, but on social media, right? Like, or not a bird. Okay. I'm totally mixing visuals. She's like a person, a person or a bird. I don't know. People in real life don't just yell at you. You're an asshole. But that sort of in interaction like does happen in social media spaces. So I think one, just having this lens of the kinds of conversation that tend to happen in digital spaces when, you know, we're more removed from the humanity of the other, it, it does more easily take on kind of a toxic bend. So I think just having that framework around our interaction with social media and digital spaces in general is really important. Um, and then there's kind of a criteria she walks through of like, who is this coming from, right? Is this like an asshole on the internet who's just trolling or is this a friend and you're like, you want to consider it? But actually having a system for like this feedback I'm getting is hard. Like who is this coming from and considering that? Um, so I would just say whatever your system is, having some sort of process around how you engage social media and, and contextualizing it, contextualizing these interactions that are happening and then figuring out like, is this how you want to be interacting socially with people? Um, I encourage people to do like a week break and see what their mental real estate is like. Um, for some of us as neurodivergent people, like we form some of our deepest connections digitally, but I do think we need to pay attention to how we're doing that, what spaces feel generative, what spaces don't. Um, I realize this is way more like bird eye view than like what to actually do when you're opening the app. This is more kind of meta, how to have a relationship with social media in a healthy way. But I think when you have RSD, you just have to be thinking about these things more intentionally. Yeah, I think that sounds like good advice. And I'm almost thinking about like taking a step back and like putting different responses from different people in different buckets, like um, weighting the responses more or less because you're right. If you're walking down the street, someone is probably not going to scream that at you. I mean, most likely. But when you can type whatever you want and just put it out into the world without really any repercussion a lot of the time, mm -hmm. it really does create this social dynamic where it's quite polarizing and society is quite torn in so many directions. So the likelihood of being trolled or just having people disagree with you or have to jump in just to say something because they want to say something that can certainly lead to a response and a shutdown and, and more anxiety and overwhelm. So I think if you're able to, like you said, step back, contextualize, take a look at who you want to be having conversation and relationship mm -hmm. with. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. Like some of my deepest formed connections are via 
the internet and social media, some of whom I've never met in person. Like, yeah, you like are. you and I wouldn't exist. This right. podcast wouldn't exist without social media. Like, I think totally. I literally met you. I, I saw your podcast with Joel, and I think that was in a Facebook group, and then we connected on Instagram. Like, you and I would not know each other. This would not exist without social media. Yeah. No, and I, and I consider you one of my closest friends. That is that is yeah, in my same. circle of people right now, and. But I think that I wonder if we could ever get into like the existentialism and the layers that come with having to create like more of a callous skin or approach to mm. social media. But I also acknowledge that social media plays a major factor in my business. So I know that I have to like sift through and experience some rejection at times too. Mm -hmm. And I've learned to deal with that. But for the common human who's not a therapist, who's not entrepreneurial, who's not on social media for business, but is just on there for a connection, it can feel like there is a, um, an, an inability to create community if it feels like there's mm -hmm. just constantly rejection every time you open up Facebook or Instagram yeah. or platform yeah. like to be Absolutely. On. Absolutely. And um, okay, I'm going to give a few more anchoring concepts. Um, there's this idea from social psychology called upward comparison. Um, this sounds really, sounds really twisted. Every time I say it, I can't say it with a straight face. But what the research shows is we tend to um, do best when we do more downward comparison than upward comparison. This is why, like, it's, it sounds so, like, cringy of, like, intentionally compare yourself to people who are doing less well than you. you. Um, I don't love that as a, like, intervention strategy or practice, but I do think it's a important to be aware of how much of your energy is spent in upward comparison and on social media is built for a lot of upward comparison, right? If people are posting like the highlights of their life and you're comparing the like mundane moments to that, um, even so even like we could talk about like how many likes, how many comments, but even just the experience of seeing other people's highlights and then filling in like your mind fills in the stories that can also create or trigger RSD of just like, look at what all these other people are doing and are able to do. So I think being aware of, of social comparison and upward comparison when engaging with social media is really important. Um, the other thing, you know, boundaries, I think become really important. What are your boundaries? Getting clear around that. Um, when you post things, do you have comments on, do you not, do you, um, do you get into hard conversations in social media spaces, or do you not? Do you say, hey, this would be better in an email or this would be better in a phone call? Um, so figuring out what your boundaries are. And then the third thing, um, impulsivity, right? A lot of us have impulsivity. There's, isn't there like a, there's like a breathalyzer for phones where like some people will do that. Have you heard of this? Where like you have to breathe into your phone to be not um, yes. drunk. Yeah, there's people to, you know, impulsively send drunk text messages and uh, things that get them into trouble the next day. So yeah. I feel like we need like a filter like that or like impulsivity of like, how am I going to feel about this comment in 30 minutes tomorrow, um, especially if we're in a heated dialogue or if there's a lot going on sociopolitically, just knowing that we're more likely to have those impulsive comments come out and then to consider your future self, which again, is going to take I think intentional practice for us, because it's not something a lot of us do naturally of like, how am I gonna feel about this comment tomorrow? How am I gonna feel about people's feedback to this if I'm putting something out there that is 
you know, one of those like hot ideas. So I'm glad you named that because I actually found myself in that situation within my Facebook group last week. And I'm not going to go into the dynamics because the issues at play are just polarizing on all sides and there's, there's trauma and, and damage being mm. done all around mm -hmm. worldwide. So I'm just alluding to something without alluding to it. And I had to step back and pause my Facebook group for two and a half days yeah. because I was mentally unwell and I was mm -hmm. struggling to keep up with comments and like moderate mm -hmm. and ensure that everyone mm -hmm. was talking to each other respectfully as adults and as therapists, which doesn't seem like something I should have to do. But mm -hmm. I also then realized I'm like, okay, this group is a purpose for like, how do we help each other through entrepreneurial journeys? And it's turning into something that I don't want it to be. How do we address mm -hmm. both things, right? And also, how do we show up authentically? How do we stand by our values? So I decided I will turn comments on limited comments. So mm -hmm. someone can only respond every five minutes, right? Including myself, which means then you have to take- I love that. Yeah, you have, you have to, to yes, yes. Yeah, because that like posting in a reactive space, that's where a lot of these things kind of pile on. Yeah. Um, and- so I love that, like a forced kind of nervous system break between posts. That's, I didn't know that was possible. Yeah. Yeah. So I turned on the limited comments, right? So someone can only comment every five minutes. This allows me as the host and the moderator and the human to step back and breathe. This allows whoever <laughs> is feeling really charged up to step back <laughs> and breathe. And I think we can implement, like you said, these boundaries that allow for us to take that step back, to take that breath, to not respond impulsively and also not to react impulsively because that's mm -hmm. what's happening in, in this world where we have information at the tips of our fingertips and we can just respond to anything and any everything all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then, and then when we do that and we have RSD, like, and we look back and we're like, cause I, I've definitely had that experience of like, I'm in my reaction and I'm, I am being impulsive. And afterwards I'm like, oh shit. And I replay it, the dialogue over and over and over. And it, like, I don't feel like myself in those moments and those moments become like kind of raw spots of shame. And so it's not just protecting kind of others from our spewing reactivity, but it's also protecting ourselves of like how we're going to hold that memory and that um, whatever feelings or shame we have about how we acted in that moment. So it's also protective of our future selves. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And I think there are other things you can do too, to create these boundaries. Like you can hit the unfollow button on groups yeah. or on people yeah. that are not creating that feeling of safety or, or energy or, or connection. You can snooze people for 30 days. One of my favorite things to do is hit the snooze button. I have snoozed so many damn people that I didn't forget. I didn't know that was a thing. And then okay. all of a sudden they pop back up and I'm like, oh shit, I need to snooze them again. I just came up with the exercise. Um, we should have everyone listening to this do this and you and I should do it. Um, like to log into a social media account very intentionally with a very specific lens, like a emotion nervous system lens and to scroll. But the, the thing you're paying attention to is what happens to you. Like when you see that content, right? Is there activation? Is there anger? Is there like, oh, I feel connected and understood and known. And to, um, I mean, I don't know. If, yeah. To potentially like unfollow based on, 
I mean, that might sound harsh, but yeah, just based on like paying attention to what is your body telling you as you look at this content and then is that someone you want to follow? I know on Facebook, it feels a little bit more personal, like, oh my goodness, this person unfollowed me. Are we not friends anymore? So I know that gets a little, but that's maybe where the snooze is helpful. Well, the beauty of unfollow slash snooze is not unfriend. There's a differentiation here, right? So like hitting unfollow, oh. you'll never see your stuff again, but we're still oh. friends. Like they don't know that. They, see, I don't followed. know Facebook very yeah, well anymore. I'm on Facebook, sadly. And that's where like the bulk of my, my work and audience comes from. And then there's the snooze button where it's like, I don't want to see these groups or these messages or these people for 30 days. And sometimes just simply hitting that button and that would be the mute button on Instagram where you can mute and hide stories and, and posts from people too, but you don't unfollow them. And this allows for you to maintain the relationship, but just because you have a social media relationship does not mean that it's healthy for you to see their content, see their messages, see their posts every day. And if it's causing you harm, especially if you're doing the exercise that Megan just suggested, suggested, it's a great opportunity to give yourself that detox experience or that ability to step away cleanly without hurting anyone's feelings, without like hmm. disconnecting from someone that you may have to have interaction with. So I think it's important to always prioritize your energy first because this stuff can really get on top of you and, and really, mm -hmm. uh, it can be quite depleting. And honestly, Absolutely. traumatizing. Absolutely. We, the other thing I'm thinking way more basic here, but things like something I see come up a lot is like when you post something and there's not comments or likes, like there's not feedback. And that that's part of an, that's an RSD trigger. Also, like if you say an idea in a meeting and it just like drops and there's no one comes back to it. Um, I would think having some self-affirmations, maybe we can make like self-affirmations for social media. That would actually be a cool, that'd be cool content. Um, but things like having some mantras of like, um, you know, how, how many likes I get on this post is not like, doesn't represent how many people in my life care about me or doesn't represent my worth or my value. And so if those are the things that trigger you, I would actually work on developing or finding some self-affirmations that you could have um, and have them on hand so that they can be front and center. When the RSD story wants to take over your brain, you can kind of bring those back mind the thing was met with mantras and positive mantras that i always say when especially for neurodivergent people we have to believe them if we don't believe them um they're probably going to make us feel worse and sometimes it's hard for us to find mantras that we actually believe absolutely i i like that idea um i also love the idea this may sound basic and simple but i heart every single one of my posts that i make on facebook and instagram and it just allows me to feel like, okay, I made this post. I made this content. I feel proud about it. So I like it. Mm. And like, I've had other people start to mention, like, I've started liking my own posts and it makes me feel significantly better about putting it out mm. to the world. I'm like, yeah, I think that there are these little subtle psychological things that you can do to offset that worry and that concern and that overwhelm. I also wonder like how much of RSD, I don't know if there's any research about this at all. And I'd be curious is connected to the RAS, the reticulating activating system. Um, the part of the brain that was developed to kind of like mediate risk-taking behavior um, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. kind of tells you like, hey, there's danger ahead. Um, don't mm -hmm. do that. Thing. Don't post that thing. Don't pursue that thing. Don't, you know, don't experience that thing because it's risky or it's scary. And, you know, I, I think the best way for me 
when I'm in these moments of like major rejection sen- uh, sensitive dysphoria, I didn't just say that right. You did. And major it feels art- like it should. Yeah. Yeah. It should say, it feels like it should say sensation. I don't know why I feel Or that it way. feels like it should be rejection sensitivity dysphoria. Yes. I actually used to call it that, but it's, re- it's technically rejection sensitive dysphoria, which doesn't feel right coming out of my mouth. Oh. But that's the technical term that's been used it in out, the... rejection sensitivity dysphoria many times i mean like no, i ha- i i actually think i have it in print as that and then only in my last round of research was I like oops that's wrong <laughs> right um i don't even know what i was saying doesn't matter um well, you were t- talking about fear and inhibition and rsd yeah. yes that and that and that and that oh yeah when i'm in these moments when i'm experiencing rsd when i'm noticing being really like critical of myself, really taking to heart what other people are saying or not doing or how I'm experiencing feedback, I've got to get out and move. Like creativity Mm. and just being in movement and grounding myself, whether it be in nature or going for a walk or just getting out of this space. Because I think a lot of the times that RSD space, that energy, that actual physical presence of like feeling stuck and confined in it, (laughs) if I can just put my phone down or my laptop in my house, leave the technology behind, go for a walk for an hour, go for like, just go do something else away from it. It really does allow me to center and ground and just regulate. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. Yeah. I often will like use the metaphor of like burning access energy. And that's very much what it feels like when I have an RSD trigger. Like I just feel like so much energy. And so absolutely, if I can channel it towards something like a walk or something that's more grounding, that helps me move through that energy more. I'm still going to have the intrusive thoughts. I'm still going to have the rumination and I have other strategies for that, but the getting the, the kind of stress anxious energy out is, is so important. Yeah. Which is why, again, back to social media, right? Like you could be in class opening your phone and you see something that activates or like right before business meeting, then you've got all this energy and you're supposed to be sitting and focused. So that's probably another, like thinking through when do I open this um, would be another consideration. And that would be a good way you mentioned boundaries. You can put (laughs) those restrictions on your phone, right? If you notice like Mm. I am impulsively or compulsively checking my phone at these times and it's creating distress, let's say it's in class or at work or whatever put the boundary or limitation on the app that says like, I can't open this from this time to this time. At least Mm -hmm. that gives you that like accountability check when it's like, Oh, I click on Instagram and it tells me, but you have it turned off for the next six hours. And I'm like, okay, now I have to make the conscious decision of, do I want to continue on to Instagram or do I want to realize I need to step away from this for a reason because it's for my own mental health. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, the, the, I'm kind of uh, taking, I'm decentering from this conversation to have a different conversation. I'm sure. noticing that we're like, let's start with a simple question. And we're like 20 minutes into talking about RSD and social media. And I think there's a reason we're still talking about it. I kind of wonder if we want to make this whole episode about that and have RSD in three parts. Or It's it's a huge topic. So um, do you want to just keep this conversation and we can get to the more complicated questions in episode three? Cool. Works for me. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's also this topic, we're probably gravitating more towards the social media topic because that's where we spend a lot of our time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Not just for our businesses, like we mentioned, but for our communities, for 
connection. And I think that's really challenging. Like we mentioned, the connection piece, especially for those of us who are neurodivergent, who are introverted, who have a hard time going out into the world and being social or our sensory systems are just overloaded constantly. If we're working from home, especially, we're probably spending a lot of time on the internet. Oh yeah, absolutely. So much of our life is spent in digital space, which is why like narratives like social media is good or bad, like just don't work. Cause it's like, well, no, it it is. And then it's like, let's have more nuanced conversations about how we use it, um, about our relationship to this, about what is, when we have these social interactions through this container of digital space, what does that do to the like relationship to the interaction? Like it's so much more complex than is this thing that we have good or bad. Um, It actually reminds me, there's a study that just came out and I've read the abstract and I've skimmed it, but I haven't read it in detail yet, but it was, it's a really interesting study. So it's looking at autistic teens and depression and anxiety. And so, so this is well known in the research, right? Um, Social media and teen like depression, anxiety, tend to like social media use tends to increase depression, anxiety. Um, so they did a study and they looked at autistic teens versus non-autistic teens. What they found was that for non-autistic teens, like how much a person was using sh- social media or maybe it was digital, maybe it was screens. Um, I think it was more broadly, it was screens. Increased depression, anxiety, but for autistic people, it didn't. Um, in fact, I think it decreased it. Which, and then what the researchers get it is autistic people are using digital space differently. They're using the internet differently. And I thought that was so interesting. And I, I want to do more of a deep dive into that. But I'm also curious. I mean, our, we've been talking a lot about the ADHD experience. I'd be curious, like, yeah, how are autistic people using digital space differently in a way that it is maybe helpful for our mental health or, or at least less harmful. Yeah. I'm actually thinking of an example. Um, I had my first major throat surgery, uh, two years ago. And I remember like laying in the hospital bed, like recovering and obviously can't speak because I'm like recovering and just had throat Mm -hmm. surgery, but I'm also isolated, right? Like I'm just laying on the hospital bed and I know that I'm going to be there for the next three days. And I was online. I was in my Facebook group and I was like, talking and just sharing updates and whatever. And several people were like, Hey, you're supposed to be recovering. Like you should get mm-hmm. off of social media. Hence like the social media is bad phenomenon mm-hmm. slash reality. And I got really like reactive slash defensive in a way where it was like, but this is how I connect with the world. I, mm-hmm. I, this is not taking energy from me. This is actually energizing me to feel a part of something that I've created opposed to feeling isolated and alone laying on this hospital bed for the next three mm-hmm. days. Like, yeah. I, I love that. And that I feel like really gets at the heart of it, which I would say is belonging. Like humans have an innate need to belong. Um, social psychologists have really picked this up in the last handful of years of, you know, adding to some of like Freudian's innate drives. Many would say an innate drive is to belong. And there's actually been some interesting research that ha- what they demonstrated was a lot of anxiety and a lot of pathological anxiety, because anxiety is not always pathological, um, is connected to this need to belong. 
So this is such an innate built-in need in us. So that's what I hear you saying in that moment is like, wait, no, I like, I need to tap into belonging. That's part of my recovery. And that is what I am getting from this space. Absolutely. And I don't know if I was able to communicate it that uh, succinctly. But what I did notice is like, I got immediately reactive. I started to feel very defensive. And I think this goes back to, maybe this is core as well, for a lot of us who are neurodivergent, is not only that we need belonging, humans need belonging, absolutely. We need connection, we need to feel a part of. Like that is just in our biology, in our genetic makeup. We need to feel seen too. And I think that so often we do not feel seen and we do feel overlooked and we do feel like someone misses the mark of what we're trying to get across or what we're trying to um, emphasize. And I know for me, that feeling is really where I shut down. That's really where I experience <laughs> a lot of shame. That's really where I experience some self-loathing is when I'm trying to get a point across or where I'm trying to express myself. And it's just missing the mark. And the person is just <laughs> not seeing it the way that I'm trying to communicate it. And I think that for me, that is a lot of, if we're talking about the autistic experience, a lot of what I'm experiencing in these moments when we're talking about uh, RSD. We are experiencing the absence of being seen, of being yeah. missing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This can yeah. happen in situations. This can happen in mm -hmm. appointments. This can ha happen in social yeah. experiences. Like, mm hmm Oh, I almost want to tease that out that, but I mean, I think it is part of RSD, but that like experience of being misperceived, something I've noticed, I haven't seen, this is a, a clinical observation. I haven't necessarily seen research on this, but that I, I've noticed uh, autistic people, many of them really don't like just the experience of being perceived, of knowing I can be perceived, of knowing if, you know, if I go on a walk, someone can see me, if I am doing a performance, someone can see me, just the experience of being perceived. And I wonder if how much of that, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but I wonder how much of that goes back to like how frequently we are misperceived and how painful that is. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Hmm. I just, your reactivity makes sense too. Like I was just thinking about how like, how sad that is. Like you went to your, this group because it was a place you do feel belonging and then to, I, I know they weren't trying to tell you you're doing something bad, but I imagine that's kind of how you took it in to feel yeah. so unseen in that moment when what you were getting out of the group was belonging, but then to be misperceived in your attempt to find connection and belonging. Yeah. I think it was like this situation, right? Like I'm the moderator of all things private practice. So I set the stage, I set the tone, I create all the engagement, all the interaction. And I probably had a lead up to surgery of like, I'm going to be away from this group for a while because I'm having, mm. folks, I'm not going to participate and blah, 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 blah. And then immediately, like several hours after surgery, I'm like participating in said group. And people were probably coming from a place of like, oh, we're trying to look out for you. You said you were going to be recovering. So I think it was an inability on my part to explain like, this is what I need right now. And I think that yeah. created this intense sensation of frustration and like, I was not able to explicitly communicate my needs in that mm -hmm. moment and just was yeah. hoping that people would just be like, yeah, let's talk about, you know, whatever. Which that's probably like a really powerful takeaway, right? That part of 
neurodivergent people finding belonging and feeling seen is the ability to articulate what we need. Because what we what we need in any given moment might not be kind of the status quo. But like right now I need space or right now I need a hug or right now I need to engage in this digital conversation and that this is actually helpful for me. Um, so A, getting clarity about what our needs are and B, finding comfortable ways to communicate that. I think that absolutely wraps into the belonging conversation. For sure. Scene. I want to model like healthy communication around RSD as well. If you are okay with me mm-hmm. sharing some behind the scenes of your, our friendship and dynamic and relationship. Sure. Yes. I'm, I'm, my, like, my uh, anxiety just went up, but no, like, no anxiety I love needed. this about. I want to just like model it for people too. Okay. So Megan and I obviously share an Instagram account. And then we collaborate on posts for. Said oh my podcasts. gosh! I almost texted you last night. Is this about last night? Yeah, but I'm. I want to frame it from last okay. night's perspective yes. Yes. to six months ago's perspective. Okay. So, Megan's Instagram audience is significantly larger than my my Instagram audience. It's a big source of your business and community. So, when we first started this podcast, we'd send collaboration invites. Megan would accept them. Well. Half the time, accept them. Half the time, not. Except them on Fridays. I have a very specific schedule I stick to. (laughs) And then she would remove herself from said collaboration. And I would get the notification like, Neurodivergent Insights has removed (laughs) uh, collaboration, whatever it says. And I'm like, what the fuck? And then I would say, okay, I respect Megan and I appreciate our relationship. I cannot have this resentment slash frustration or confusion. So we talked about it, but I was definitely in an RSD moment where I was like, Megan doesn't want to do this anymore together. Mm-hmm. I said something wrong. The video content isn't up to her standards, whatever, whatever the narrative was in my head. And then we talked about it and you're like, no, this is just how my brain works. And this is how I need my grid to look. And this is how I need my post to look. And I was like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. Like it's not me. It's not us. We're still having a good podcast relationship and friendship and that happened again last night but i did not experience it the way i experienced it six months ago because we talked about it so for those of you who are able to have these types of conversations i think it's very useful in relationships whether it be friendships Mm -hmm. professional intimate relationships i think the struggle is for those of you who feel like you're not able to express this in a way Mm -hmm. where you're going to feel seen heard validated or understood And that's the part I would like to tease out too, is for those of you who feel like I can't do that with people in my Mm -hmm. life, like I don't have access that way, or I don't have the ability to, to communicate it in a way that's going to lead to feeling like we resolve these feelings. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, First, I love that you brought that up partly. I I did. I almost texted you last night to explain because like my profile bird right now, it's like divergent conversations, the middle column, and then and, you know, I'm autistic. I like, so I almost texted you that I was like, Ooh, I don't want him to think. Yeah. Um, but I love that that came up. So I, a term popped in my head when you were talking, uh, that just like came to me relational reality testing. Um, I think when we have RSD that when we have those relationships that can sustain that where it can be like, Oh, this happened. And I'm, I want to check in around it can be so helpful, not just for that relationship, but it starts creating 
I guess like evidence or a narrative of like, oh, right. My mind is not always telling me an accurate story or a helpful yeah. story. And so having those experiences. Um, and then, so for those situations where there's not enough trust to do that relational reality testing, if we can and have done those in relationships that are safe enough where there's enough trust to do that, I think we can draw on those moments of like, you know, this, this last week, this happened and my mind started telling this story and I found out it was actually about them. Maybe something similar is happening here. So we can kind of talk ourselves through that perspective, I guess that perspective taking or that reality testing of like, maybe it's not about me. Like we need a, we need a Taylor Swift song that's like opposite of me. I'm the problem. It's me to like, maybe it's not me. Um, we need some catchy, like it's not, maybe it's not me song out there. I love that. I think I, I like that term a lot too. And I think that's that's perfect to describe. And you talked about this last week where you we were like, take a step back, be the detective or the investigator here about your brain and what your brain and your thoughts are doing, right? So like, I think it's important to look at it that way. Also that it makes me diverge into another celebrity. I shot my shot uh, for both of us with Chloe Hayden uh, and her Instagram. She has an autist, she's an autistic celebrity, author, podcast host. Huh. They turned us down. Nevertheless, they responded, which I thought was really cool. And I was like, oh man, maybe I can get them on this podcast. But sadly not. Chloe's commitments take her away that, from... Did that activate your RSD? No, I never expected a response. So it was actually like, oh, cool. At least you read this. I also shot my shot with Dr. Devin Price. Have not heard back. Well, speaking of social media boundaries, he's someone who has really good boundaries and yep. so like um that that's actually i think i was inspired by him like he, i don't know if it's changed but he back when i was more on there like he rarely had comments on if ever i don't think he does dm um so i'm not surprised we didn't hear back and i think it's partly because of those rock solid uh boundaries that he models and has yep i agree 100 percent because that's the message i got it was uh, yep. DMs are not allowed to this account. So, you know, I will mm -hmm. continue to try. <laughs> yes, probably. I would guess email would be. Yeah, I tried to find it. Couldn't find that. But um, that's probably boundaries. also smart. <laughs> boundaries are important. And I think that Megan is um, someone who really has good boundaries, like your email, auto response, your social media comments turned off for the most part. Like you are protecting yourself and your energy. And I think that mm -hmm. that's a big part of this, right? Like, so the ability to take that step back, create the boundaries that work for you, remove the interactions that are that are causing you harm um, mm -hmm. or distress and trying to figure out how to channel that energy. Like you said, the access energy that you can have when you're in this RSD space, because we do need to burn it off in some way. Otherwise, it mm -hmm. can destroy you in, in those moments and it can lead to impulsivity. It can lead to things that you would like to take back. Um, it can lead to destruction in relationships too that mm -hmm. you care about. Absolutely, it can. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was a beautiful summary, like paragraph. And I I, I kind of just want to end it there, but I feel yeah. like I'm going to ruin it because I, ha I had a thought. Um, I okay. had an association. Go ahead. Um, I think we often have to work through some of our RSD to be able to create boundaries. Um, I think the reason I waited till I was absolutely 
burnt out, overwhelmed, and struggling with health before I put up boundaries was be- partly because of my RSD of like, but people will be upset, but I won't be accessible. But like that made it hard for me to go into digital spaces with boundaries um, or I have to respond to every email, right? Like because of the RSD. So th- that's a tricky thing here. Boundaries are really helpful for RSD, but we have to work through a level of it to be able to cultivate those boundaries or just get burnt out enough that like, you're like, okay, fuck it. Boundaries. That's where I got to. I mean, I learned some from you, you know, and your boundaries, but I got to, and I'm glad you just named that. Cause that's, that's honestly very, very important. It, it allows for us to not minimize the experience. Like I think that you have to work through it to create the boundaries for sure, or be working on it. And you may mm-hmm. be working on it because like you said, you get to the place where it's like, fuck it. I don't care. Mm-hmm. And that's the place I got to for a while. And maybe that's the place I'm in is like when I meet with my therapist, she's like, so the ADHD part wants to create, create, create the autistic part looks at the calendar and, you know, is, is already exhausted and, and frustrated about the planning. But then I got to this place where both parts had no interest in doing any of it. And I mm-hmm. think that was the fuck it moment where it was like, yeah, I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not responding to every DM or, console Mm -hmm. request or email anymore. I'm just going to respond with blanket statements or referrals outward because I just cannot do it. And it's unfortunate that so many of us have to get to that place because there's so much connection. We talked about attachment systems last week with feeling useful, feeling responsive, having value based on feeling responsive or useful, working through that internalized sensation of I'm not going to be valuable. I'm not going to be useful. People aren't going to think of me. People aren't going to want to connect with me if I don't, if I put these boundaries mm-hmm. in place. So it's, it's a lot of unlearning and it's a lot of healing when you're working through how to navigate this process. Absolutely. Absolutely. If there is one gift to burnout and I feel we're calling it a gift, maybe growth edge to burnout. It is if it propels you to build a life that works for you, right? Like so many of us, the life we're living doesn't work for us and we get burnt out. And if the pattern is like, live that life, burn out, kind of recover, go back to that life. Like that's just going to be a perpetual cycle. But if that burnout is the thing that's fine, like, okay, I've got to do something different here. And if that becomes, becomes the instigator for cultivating a life that works and like boundaries are a big part of that, that is... Yeah, I guess kind of the gift of burnout. Again, I feel weird using any kind of gift language with burnout because it's atrocious, but. I think it's illuminating in a lot of ways though. I think it kind of is illuminating into what your next steps are when you get to that level of burnout where it's like, I don't care anymore. I have to set these boundaries. Otherwise the results are X, Y, Z. It's kind of like grief. Like I think about those moments in life that break you wide open. This kind of, which are those moments that invite you into transformation if if you can accept that invitation. Um, and I would, like grief absolutely does that. I would say burnout also does that. Agreed. Well, I think that w- you just uh, added to my summation perfectly. So for those of you listening, lots of good takeaways here and things that you can implement. I hope we answered the, the one question that we set the up to The one question we got to. <laughs> We start with the easy question and talk for an hour. Divergent <laughs> Conversations are at, is out every Friday on all major platforms and YouTube, and we will do part three simultaneously. Goodbye. 
And now, pause for a word from our sponsors. From new patients faced with an empty lobby and no idea where to find their therapist, to clinicians with a session running overtime and the doorbell ringing, some of the most anxiety-ridden moments of a therapy appointment happen before a session even starts. This episode's sponsor, The Receptionist for iPad, helps you tackle some of that pre-appointment apprehension and anxiety. The Receptionist for iPad is an easy-to-use digital client check-in system that helps your visitors check in securely to their appointments and notify their practitioners of their arrival via SMS, email, or your preferred channel. No more confusion, endless lobby checking, or having clients sign in on paper logbooks. It can even help you upgrade and update your demographic information for your clients as well and even validate parking. Start a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash private practice. Make sure to start your trial with that link and you'll also get your first month free if you decide to sign up.